Hi, this is Tony Baxter, and it's great to be a part today of the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to yet another edition of Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time checking out the show, welcome, welcome, welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never before heard stories, behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, music, music today, and much, much more. I'm your one of your co-hosts, Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. Also, uh, great, great uh, new dad dealing with teething children. And you can email me. <laughs> Al John at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and uh, resident troublemaker, I guess. Yes. Uh, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. <laughs> uh, if you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Uh, and we're now on Sorcerer Radio. Uh, you can like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And you can also email me at Dave at skullrockpodcast.com and you know al john i got a lovely lovely email this past week from uh natalie and jeffrey in central florida and and i gotta tell you it's just so wonderful to hear from our listeners and uh natalie said uh i have been meaning to drop you a note to say how much my husband and i have enjoyed listening to your podcast it's definitely one of our favorites with all of yours and Al John's insights and the fantastic guests. Uh, and she just said, what a gem of a podcast that is truly capturing the history of those that made such a legendary impact on Disney and in the animation fields. I mean, oh. you know, what what a great note. That is awesome. Well, I'm so happy to uh, Natalie and Jeffrey for listening to the show and sending that nice note. And uh, yeah, I mean, as the podcast grows, we'll continue to grow and and hopefully you'll continue to listen and and tell your friends about the show. But we're glad to at least give you a little bit of entertainment during the week. So that's awesome. Yeah, I I thought that was really nice. And, uh, you know, it makes it makes me feel good. And I'm sure it does you, too, Al, John, uh, when you when you get that kind of feedback from your listeners, you know, I mean, I think we're we're trying to do a show that, um, you know, touches on on a lot of Disney and some pop culture and and, and the guests we're bringing on really bring some insights and a little peek behind the curtain, uh, behind the scenes of, of some of these great movies. Absolutely. I mean, I am a sucker for bonus feature content. Anytime I get a, a DVD of stuff I just dig, yes, I'd still collect physical media, y'all, and records and things like that. When I get those uh, sleeves for music and I like to dig into the liner notes, I've always loved that. When I get those DVDs and Blu-rays, when I look into the you know bonus feature discs, I always like digging in. And it's great that as a fan, I can listen back to the show and go, Dave, wow, I never knew that about this. Or it's always great to see those uh, behind-the-scenes moments as we talk about every week. And as a fan, it's just those nice gems that I love so much. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really terrific. Absolutely. Um, and, and speaking of terrific, we, we've we got a really terrific guest Oh yeah. Uh, today. We've got Chris Montan, uh, the former 
president of Walt Disney Studios Music, uh, and or really Walt Disney Music. Uh, he uh, he's the former president, and uh, wait until he comes on. I mean, what an accomplished uh, guy! He's a musician himself, by the way, and uh, he was a producer and executive producer on some of the most uh, memorable and uh, I think favorite soundtracks uh, from the 1990s. Absolutely. And, and, and theme park fans too, guys, uh, he's also responsible for a lot of the music in the parks as well. And so I can't well wait to uh, delve in with him uh, as a fellow musician. I know Dave, you're such a music fan um, working with, with Chris throughout your career. So that's going to be awesome. Can't wait. Um, another thing we need to mention uh, other than the fact that Chris is waiting in the, uh, the, uh, the break room and the, the green room eating all the Pringles is our reviews, Dave, they're coming in. Are they? They are coming in. In fact, would you like me to read a couple? Because I've, I've yeah, got a few. Yeah, please do. I, I, I'd love to hear them. So Paul Matthew W. leaves us a review, a five-star, by the way. Mm. All right, so we did. Awesome podcast. Skull Rock is a great podcast for any Disney fan and really any fan of entertainment in general. Al John and Dave do a great job as hosts, and both guys have an encyclopedic knowledge of all things Disney. This episode featured... A trumpeter Rick Baptiste and was phenomenal. I've been listening to Rick's superb trumpet playing on soundtracks for years, and it was interesting to hear his insight. Thanks so much, Dave and Al John, for an awesome podcast. Keep them coming. Love that. I love, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Here's one more. Uh, this is from RS6113 and also a five-star review. Just wanted to take a minute to say how much I enjoy your show. Great content from Al John and Dave, along with some incredible guests. If you're a Disney fan, I highly recommend this podcast. So mm. David's coming in. And then we also have so one. Nice. Yeah. Another five-star review from Joanne 708. Great show. So glad I found this podcast, Disney history, like no. So awesome. Yeah. So awesome. some great feedback. I, we love getting these. And once again, if, if you listen to us, which a tremendous amount of you do, I think it's like 78% of our podcast audience listens to Apple. So if you listen on Apple podcast, feel free to drop those reviews. If we deserve the five stars, give us those five star reviews, leave us questions and comments through that uh, section there in Apple podcast. Absolutely. That, that's so great. I love hearing those things because it just, it, you know, it, it makes me feel good because it, it, it's validating the fact that we're doing something uh, good that people are enjoying. Absolutely. It, it, when you do these things, you don't, it's not like you're doing a live panel, Dave, and you've done so many live panels um, yeah. where you get that immediate crowd feedback, much like entertainers mm -hmm. do, or like playing in bands. But when you do the podcast, we just kind of talk in a room and we have our guests and we sit around and we have these great conversations, but you don't know what the audience is going to respond to or what they're going to applaud for. So yeah. it's nice to get that feedback. So keep it yeah, coming. And, you know, the other thing too is by all means, if people uh, have suggestions for guests that they'd like to have on the show, please, please make suggestions to us. We're, we're going to do our best to try and get them. We, we've had some fantastic guests so far. I mean, every week we have a fantastic guest, I think. Yes. But, uh, you know, if there's somebody in particular that you'd love to hear from, let us know, and we'll see if we can get them on the show. 100%. Well, before we uh, get into our guest, why don't we delve into a little bit of this pop culture news. Skull Rock Podcast, this week in Disney and pop culture. All right, Dan. Disney Genie's here. 
<laughs> yeah. uh, so this new app is being touted by Disney as a great all-in-one app for park visitors to plan their trip and skip long lines. And so uh, Fast Pass, as we know it, uh, is gone at Walt Disney World. I know it's been eliminated for some time now at Disneyland. But um, yeah, an opportunity to get on this app, schedule restaurant reservations, order food, pay for merchandise. Uh, get the forecast, so that's nice um, in terms of uh, wait times and attractions. And they also have replaced Fast Pass with Genie and Genie Plus Electric. It was it Electric oh, Lightning Lane? Like I almost said Electric Lane, <laughs> Lightning Lane, <laughs> Lightning Lane, uh, which they'll use to uh, kind of replace it. There is a little bit of a tier system going on there where you can pay to get this uh, this access, and we knew it was coming, Dave. But uh, have you been able to kind of delve into a little bit of their their thought process, and what are you what are your thoughts on this? You know, look, I, when I read this article, I, I just immediately, it's just a money grab, you know, <laughs> I mean, look, I, I call it like it is, uh, you know, the fast pass was great for people because it, it was open to anybody who wanted to try and get a fast pass right mm-hmm. now there, uh, you know, if you have a lot of disposable income, you know, uh, you can jump ahead of other people now by paying extra. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it is what it is. Yep. So Genie was announced at first uh, D23 Expo 2019 that I, I attended. And it's been, Disney is just really reliant on technology. Um, which is great. I, I think it's great. I mean, I think I think having an app that allows you to do a lot of things within the park, uh, you know, is, is a natural evolution uh, of, you know, people using their smartphones and people are comfortable with their smartphones and have tons of apps. So why not? When it works. Yeah, when, when it, it works. works. Uh, and that that is my thing. I, I've been using my Disney experience for years prior to the pandemic. We were annual pass holders until then. And the app was clunky and I had to take screenshots in order to show my fast passes because I couldn't get the app to load um, properly. And I always have like the latest phones and everything, but it's a matter of bandwidth, I think in the park. So yes, we knew the tiers were coming. They say it's going to be simple, but it's, you know, with all the different tiers and everything, it's very confusing, I think for the average person who just wants to go and enjoy their time at the park. So I think we'll have to see how this plays out, but, um, you know, they really need to invest in some of that higher higher bandwidth there at the park so that people can get the most if they're going to be using this app a lot. So, you know, the one thing I'll add to this, it's like going on the cruise ship where you have the key uh, or going to, you know, Walt Disney World where you get the wristband if you're staying on property and you just touching the wristband on everything on all these keypads. Uh, so. Uh, people have to be aware that they're going to get sticker shock at the end of their visit. You know, I, I saw it a number of times on the cruise ship where people were just like beside themselves because um, they all of a sudden had topped out on what they had approved uh, uh, with their credit card. And they had to go to the concierge to, to sort of, you know, re up uh, another, chunk of dough. Uh, So people need to, you know, these apps, they're easy to use because you're just touching and hitting buttons and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's charging your credit card, you know? Well, and this is true. I think the argument that, um, because my wife and I, my wife being a, a, a travel agent, we go back and forth and we talk about this with our friends and family. And it just seems to me like, yes, the cost of admission now 
is high still, even if you're going without all the perks. But then to add this on, you just if this is what you want, then you know you've got to pay and chill out the extra dough to to have that experience. But I don't, you know, I, I think if it's just like anything else. Remember going back to the park before Fast Pass, you had to wait in line for all these things. So now sure. it's just there you go. That's what it is. I mean, it doesn't. If you want to pay the premium. Go for it. If you don't want to pay the premium, just chillax and have a good time, and so be it. But it is a, it definitely is a cost uh, for entry. Um, we'll have to see how it is monitored and how it expands over the course of the next few months. So we'll and how it works. How Hopefully it will work. Yeah. Hopefully too. Yeah, yeah. There's no time frame as to when they're going to launch it. So, uh, but I'm sure they're going to launch it before around the same time as the 50th. They, I know they want to make that happen. It's the word on the street. So, yeah. yeah. Well, the word on the street for Shang-Chi, a great film, by the way, from what I've heard, Dave, and, and you saw it, right? No, I haven't seen oh, it yet. I haven't yet. seen it yet? I figured by now no. you would have seen it, but uh, no, the no. reviews have been in. Um, Disney is sparing no expense. The media, my friends uh, that are part of the media have already seen it, and they said, this is Black Panther level of awesomeness, Dave. That's, what That's great. I, I can't wait to see it. It looks fantastic. Absolutely. So um, the Marvel Studios boss, Kevin Feige, had addressed Simu, uh, star of the, the titular star of Shang-Chi, Simu Liu's response to uh, CEO Bob Chapek, as well as Scar- Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney. And um, he is very well spoken about these things. I'm trying to see that. Uh, yeah, you know, he. Uh, we we talked about this last week. I kind of felt like the actor from uh, Shang Chi um, uh, may have, you know, sort of jumped the gun and misinterpreted Bob uh, uh, Chapek's comments mm-hmm. about an experiment because I think Bob Chapek was was talking about an experiment in distribution and how they're releasing films. Yeah, and uh, and Kevin Feige came out and basically basically said the same thing that that there was a, a bit of a misinterpretation there because it really was about the distribution release. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what he was kind of making that clarification. He also noted that Chang-Chi's premiere had a similarly impactful feel to that of Black Panther celebrations. Quote, when you have the opportunity to showcase a hero that looks like a huge segment of the globe that feels like they haven't been showcased, the magic can happen if you deliver. And I think Destin and Simu um, have definitely delivered for this movie, which is amazing. And everyone is saying that. Everyone is yeah. saying that who's seen it. And so I can't wait because, um, you know, I, I loved uh, Crazy Rich Asians. I, I'll admit it. I love that movie. My wife loved that movie. And it was great to see, you know, the uh, inclusion of, of so many Asian, you know, heroes and, and stuff like that opening up with Shang-Chi um, because I'm such a huge Marvel fan. Um, so I and, can't and wait. And look, everything I'm hearing, it's a great movie. Yep, absolutely. You know? if, you, if you have a great story and create a great movie, all of the characters that are in that movie are going to come along with it. That's right. You know, and and, and so I, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing it. What I love about this in black Panther is that it is inclusion and diversity, but story and authenticity is first. It's not just a flipping the script for a a character that was, you know, a different, a different nationality, but no, this is, this is great. And once again, it says here in the article from Hollywood reporter, Shang-Chi is a barrier breaking film for Marvel as it is the first studio star uh, to star a largely Asian cast. Um, and I'm a big fan of Aquafina, Michelle Yeoh. Those are great actors. Yeah. So that's going to be really cool. So, and then of course there's another um, Feige quote uh, regarding 
Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit with, with Marvel saying, quote, all for amicable solutions. And once again, that's that's just a really nice way of saying we'll work it all out. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, honestly, the, this should never have become public. It should have just uh, stayed behind closed doors and been worked out. And it would have been worked out. Uh, why why it was forced to become a public thing is is beyond me. Well, I think it's just poor PR. Uh, let's yeah, just chalk it yeah. up to the poor PR department. Well, um, I mean, that that was the case with the studio's response. Exactly. I mean, they just they just kept digging a hole on that one. Yeah, honestly. No, no bueno. Uh, speaking of studios, it seems that they might be kind of backtracking a little bit. Um, according to this other report, studios begin to blink on theatrical releases yeah. amidst the Delta variant. Quote, I would have moved everything. So um, now that there is a little bit of a surge and we know this tends to happen uh, during the summertime, at least year over year. Uh, now that we've been living with it for a year that this happens in waves. Um, what do you feel like the movie industry should do Dave in regards to uh, the, uh, keeping theaters open and safe? It, you know, it's exasperating at this point because it, it does look like we're getting a bigger spike uh, with this Delta variant than what happened last summer with just the COVID-19 uh, lockdown. Um, look, uh, I'm still going to the movies. I'm wearing a mask. I'm generally going into an IMAX theater, which, you know, most of the screenings I've been to, uh, have been, you know, 15, 20 people in a giant IMAX theater, uh, which is fine by me. Um, so I, I, I don't know what to tell you They these, these companies have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, invested in some of these films, uh, and you want to get the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, but honestly, I, I kind of feel like by the time, you know, October, November rolls around, we're going to be on the downslope of this spike, mm-hmm. I hope. Uh, and I hope there isn't another variant that's going to pop up. But well, there is. I, wanna, <laughs> I really, I really want to see No Time to Die. I want to <laughs> see that on a big screen. I want to see that on an IMAX screen for crying out loud. Yeah, being you know? a huge James Bond fan film that's a thing right i mean you know it looks like you know sony was next relocating the sequel to venom let there be carnage during tom hardy from september yeah. to october then on october august 16th selling off uh, uh hotel transylvania uh, 4 which was set to release at theaters october 1st um you know so they're they're moving you know movies around uh they're shortening their theatrical releases because of you know the pandemic and other films that are in the queue ready to release and of course that's affecting that no time to die the new james bond film that you alluded to earlier um yeah i think i think it's just let's just let's just make it business as usual shall we you know maybe- i i kind of feel that way and you know what people need to do what they need to do you know i i'm advocating that you be vaccinated and have a mask on uh, but you know people are going to do what they're going to do in the various regions of the country yeah you protect yourself you take the vaccine yeah. if you so choose you wear the mask out and indoors you know you do everything that you need to do to keep you and your family safe um and then, you know, for everyone else, you know, it, it is what it is. I, and I think, you know, there are going to be other strains. You know, back in the day, Dave, we didn't call them variants. We just called them different flu strains. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's going to happen. 
You know, and yeah. so this is just a natural point. Maybe a couple times yeah. a year, we're going to have to trot ourselves out and get ourselves uh, booster shotted every every couple times a year. Well, you know, it's like getting an annual flu shot. That's you it. know, I, I've been doing that for years, you yeah. know. Uh, and as far as I know, the NSA isn't tracking me because of it. Yeah, you know? that's, that's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But you may have to show your card whenever you, you go out to a bar. Um, but but that's yeah. another story. I, I And you know something? There, there's no... Um, uh, there is no uh, standard yet on uh, vaccine cards or, you know, showing proof that you've been vaccinated because my daughter is in Paris right now mm-hmm. and uh, her, her vaccination card has worked everywhere except for one restaurant out in huh. the country. The guy wouldn't take it. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So. Well, well. And, you know, hopefully she found a, another place to eat, you know? Um, oh, yeah. It was, I, I mean, you're talking France. Yeah, exactly. You know? I was going to say, does Postmates carry out there? <laughs> yeah, let, let me put it to you this way. In, in France, uh, there is no bad food that That's I'm true. aware of. No, and, no. If, and, if, and if there was a bad restaurant, it doesn't last very long or it hangs on by a thread being a tourist attraction. No, that, that's very true. I've got friends in France as well. <laughs> you know, I have to make it up there. Hey, uh, you know, Disney profits from Deadpool and Guardians of the Galaxy at risk in the upcoming trial. Um, a long time running lawsuit, a judge reacts to Disney's argument that its legal advisory can't establish a link between the use of special effects software and why consumers aren't buying movie tickets. This is um, a strange. Yeah this, yeah, this has been going on for a long time. This is this is a uh, software company up in Silicon Valley that filed a lawsuit, um, uh, you know, to to get uh, uh, more obviously money profits from a lot of these uh, heavy visual effects films mm-hmm. uh, that used its software uh, and. Uh, you know, again, this was a ruling against Disney. And I have to tell you, all of these things that are popping up where they're not paying royalties to authors and there's lawsuits and, you know, Scarlett Johansson files a lawsuit and there's this and there's that, you know, all of those things are eroding the Disney brand, as I've said before. And they're making people subconsciously and consciously think, well, Disney's not behaving properly, you know? So I'm not surprised that that a judge is ruling against them, even though obviously they're supposed to rule on, uh, on the law. Uh, But honestly, you know, as well as I do, people are influenced. This is true. And, you know, once again, I think people oftentimes in this, in this age, in this day that we live in now in the, in the variant, you know, generation, um, People are looking to cash in and who's got bigger wallets than Disney, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and you're, you're a visual effects, you know, guy, you're a yeah. special effects guy, Dave. So sure. that, you know, the tools are out there for people to purchase for commercial use. You pay a commercial license for a lot of these things and software, mm-hmm. and that's what you do with it. And that's the price, you know, you want to charge more than charge more. But yeah. otherwise, you know, it's kind of a strange thing. But once again, people are, are so crazy because they want to get the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. It's been it, that's been going on for a number of years now. Absolutely. And so uh, I love this. Anthony Mackie, who is, of course, the Falcon, now known as Captain America. They're from uh, Captain America and Winter Soldier. I'm going to say that now. Uh, it looks like he is all set. We teased this a couple of weeks ago about doing Captain America 4 right there under Disney and Marvel Studios' Kevin Feige. So this is exciting news. So It is. I can't wait to see this. Yeah. So 
Now, I wonder what they're going to talk about. I mean, Falcon Winter Soldier was a hit on Disney+. Plus. I thought it was a great, great uh, series. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the new Captain America, uh, what kind of uh, interesting battles he's going to wage against uh, whatever supervillain there is uh, uh, coming up. So we'll be on the lookout for that. Uh, I don't think there's a date yet uh, regarding the new Captain America 4, but uh, I can't wait to see this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably a couple of years out. Yeah. So another great news, uh, bit of news, Walt Disney uh, or Disney is expanding adaptive costumes and wheelchair covered sets um, for a yeah. Halloween lineup this year. So that looks super yeah. cool. I thought that was really neat uh, that they're making this available because a lot, a lot of people in wheelchairs, uh, especially kids, have have tried to decorate their own chairs, mm-hmm. uh, and it's always makeshift. And and some of them are very inventive and and, and really terrific. Yeah. Uh, but uh, now there's uh, there's actually you know these sets where they can put covers on the on the wheels of the wheelchair and and you know on the sides and there's things that fold together that can drop over the wheelchair. So I think this is really fantastic. Very inclusive uh, uh, of a uh, sometimes overlooked audience. I love it. Uh, there's nothing like going to the parks when, you know, we have fan Disney fans when they um, not only, well, they can't really cosplay. They do the Disney bound thing, right? So they mm-hmm. kind of do the Disney bound costume thing. And now they have this role play collection. And according to this press release, it says um, they're thrilled to have the expansion of adaptive role play collection with iconic franchises uh, from such the Black Panther, Star Wars, Mandalorian, to Stephanie Young, president of Consumer Products, Games, and Publishing. And it looks like they have a little monorail. They've got the, uh, oh gosh, what was it? The carriage uh, from Cinderella. Yeah, so that there's looks some really, really fun stuff there. Absolutely. So be on the lookout for it. And if you're interested, if, if you've got a wheelchair or someone in your life has, has got a wheelchair that needs some sprucing up for the Halloween season or just any season, just to have fun, uh, visit shopdisney.com for that. That's and awesome. Now, uh, we alluded to this too. Hotel Transylvania 4 heads to Amazon and will skip theaters. Uh, Sony Pictures Animation is in talks to send Hotel Transylvania Transformania, which stars Andy Samberg and Selena Gomez, in a $100 million deal coming amid the uncertainty of box office recovery. Uh, Man, I know they, you had a lot of yeah, friends working on this project. Yeah, they, they've got to they've be able to do some of this with some of these films. Uh, there, there's a bit of a backlog, I think, of things that were going to go to the theaters. Uh, so it's not surprising that some of these films and uh, these animated features will go direct to a streaming service. Absolutely. So, um, you know, be on the lookout for that. Uh, Hotel Transylvania is always a lot of fun. Um, so please check that out when it hits Amazon. And in a uh, regret to uh, notify our, our fans out there, Don Everly, half of country rock duo, the, uh, duo, the Everly Brothers, died at 84. He released 21 studio albums with his late brother, Phil, and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, it's an end of an era. It is. It is. It was uh, sad to see this. He passed away, um, uh, I believe, on Saturday night uh, at his home. And um, 
you know, leaves behind an incredible body of work with his brother, Phil. Absolutely. I know my, my company has worked with the Everly Brothers for decades. And, you know, it's it, it's uh, never easy when, when a rock and roll legend passes. But he does leave behind an extremely uh, large catalog of beloved hits. Uh, some of them included uh, Bye Bye Love, All I Have to Do is Dream, Problems. Uh, those are just some of the songs, of course, um, you know, will will never be forgotten. So, um, do you have a particular favorite uh, Everly Brothers song? You know, I think, I think when, when I hear the name Everly Brothers, I always think of, uh, Bye Bye, you know, uh, yeah, Bye Bye Love, because, uh, it's sort of that iconic, uh, Everly Brothers tune from, from the early sixties. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I, I, I think them and like, you know, um, Nelson, um, you know, you have all those harmonies from back in the day, the early stages of rock and roll, if you will. Sure. You know, so, yeah, uh, yeah. so definitely please check that out. Once again, rest in peace, uh, Don Everly, you will be missed. But now I think it's time for our guest. Yeah, we, we should uh, get uh, Chris out of the green room and get to the interview. You can own the earth and still all your podcast interview time well al john as promised we've got a fantastic guest again we have chris montan former president of walt disney music and i gotta tell you variety named him music supervisor of the decade in 1997 for his work on such soundtracks as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Pretty Woman, Sister Act, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Hercules. I mean, wow, what a mouthful. But it's so great to see you, Chris, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to see you guys as well. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> All right, uh, the uh, studio audience, calm down, calm down. <laughs> Chris, it's great seeing you, and, and I really appreciate you coming on to the Skull Rock pod- podcast. I'd like to start with something like really early in your career because you were a touring musician for Carla Bonoff, which is really kind of cool because. The Water is Wide, one of her big hits, was a song my wife picked for our wedding. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, I moved to L.A. in 76, really primarily to be a songwriter. But pretty soon I realized I better get a job as well. So I auditioned for Carla's band and wound up going on the road with her for about three years. How was that? It was a lot of fun. It was the late 70s. And the second year I was out, we were the opening act for Jackson Brown's Running on Empty. So we went from playing clubs to playing like the Houston Summit and arenas. And it was a real education because I'd been in bar bands up to that point, you know, what most young musicians do. And all of a sudden, you know, someone's handing you a tuned guitar and there's 15,000 people screaming and, uh, you know, you learn real fast. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that, that's gotta be incredible. I remember seeing Carla Bonoff at the thousand Oaks performing arts center. Um, probably it's gotta be 20 some odd years ago or longer. Mm-hmm. And those, those were kind of the venues she would normally play if she was touring on her own, right? 
Yeah, well, we played a lot of the big clubs and stuff and, and the small theaters when we were headlining um, and then the larger venues when we were opening. Did, did you guys play like the Troubadour in, in oh, Los yeah. Angeles? Oh, and, yeah, the Roxy, uh, the Troubadour. Yeah, so, so the, those kinds of theaters, uh, they're, they're, what would you consider them? They're, they're like a, a universal amphitheater size, right? It was a couple thousand people maybe. Yeah, and sometimes a little bit more, sometimes smaller. I mean, the, the bottom line in New York was quite small, but it was very prestigious. And uh, you could really see everybody in the audience. It was small enough to, like that. Whereas when, yeah. you're doing, when you're doing the big stuff, it's just a wash of lights. You don't really, the audience is just too, you know, big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just all, it blurs together and you're you're blinded by all those lights on you. But I love playing with her because... It was a very uh, precise kind of music in the sense you really had to play your parts. And I was sort of the utility guy. I would play the string part on one thing, play rhythm guitar on one, play piano on another, and then sing. And we were very much in that sort of Eagle, Southern California, three and four part harmony stuff. So you couldn't, you had to be on and you really had to listen because her voice was so pure and in tune, you would really stand out if you weren't really lining up with her. Wow. Wow. Now, I, from from that, how did you get into uh, doing uh, animation and, and Disney music? Well, it was kind of a fluke, really. I, I was writing songs in the early 80s. I'd, I'd gotten a record deal in 80 and made a record for RCA 20th Century with Neil Portnow, who went on to run the Grammys all those years. Um, and then the, the record company got sold. So I went back to just songwriting. And I went into Disney to do some songwriting for the music publisher there. And while I was interviewing, it was in 1984, Michael Eisner had just started. And I, the guy that I was interviewing with uh, was fired. So I came home to my wife and I said, you know, if I was ever going to try the other side of the desk, this might be an, a nice place to work for six months. It's a sleepy little company. <laughs> and it really was, as you, you uh, I, I, yeah. At that time, it was. It was, it, but it was. It was on the cusp of a major transition, and it was also potentially going to be bought and broken up. Right, right. all the time yeah. I was interviewing, what was his name, Boski, and all those guys were all kind of circling it. It's Saul Steinberg. Yeah, yeah. They they were they were gonna. Uh, that's how the the term green mail came about. They they wanted to carve the company up and sell it off because they thought it was more valuable in pieces than as a whole. Right. So I I came in and I basically I I knew a couple of people that worked there, and then I they asked me to do reviews of some of the songs or the records they were making, like Mickey Mouse Disco and all that stuff. And they wound up hiring me because they had a lot of marketing people, but they didn't have anybody creative in the record company at that point. So in a way, it made the transition a little simpler in that I didn't have to do as much of the business side. I had a great business affairs attorney who really handled a lot of the deal making for me. So I was really freed up to um, start you know, signing people. And also the gentleman I was working for was tasked with starting a Saturday morning animation business, Gary Kreisel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was my boss. And so he asked me to develop all the themes. So literally my first uh, session was with June Foray and, you know, all the people that were on um, the gummy bears. Then we did the wuzzles, we did ducktails. And then within about a year, the, the guy that was now running the music department for the film studio asked me to come over and be his number two. 
So I went from the Wuzzles to Color of Money with Marty Scorsese in about 14 months. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> and, and how was that? How was that? Well, you know, the funny part was the musician. I mean, it was an incredible soundtrack. We had Don Henley, B.B. King, Mark Knopfler, like Eric Clapton, all my heroes, because I was a guitar player. And that was the easy part for me. It was very easy for me to be with other musicians. I knew some of them. I certainly knew what I was asking them to do. It was trying to learn how to deal with executives that was hard because mm -hmm. I was already in my mid-30s and I had never had a job. You know, I really I was always just a musician. And so I had to learn how to how meetings functioned, all that sort of stuff. And diplomacy. Yeah. And then <laughs> pretty soon thereafter, I met Ron and John right away because they were fi finishing up Great Mouse Detective. Mm -hmm. So that was my first end of an animated film. And Oliver and Company was my first that I sort of inherited. And um, then I met Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. And I came home to Barb, my wife, and said, you know, maybe I I'll do this for more than a year. This seems like this could be <laughs> kind of an interesting job after all. Because I, yeah. didn't, I didn't want a job. I, I wanted to write music. That was my passion. But but you had you had a, a sort of the the best of both worlds because you were in the music uh, world which you had already been part of, right? Uh, and and you were really being a creative producer, so you weren't getting bogged down with having to do reports and and all of that kind of stuff, were you? Yeah, I mean, in the very early that you know, I was doing all the live action too. So we were doing Ruthless People and some of the early Touchstone films. So it was a really busy time for me. I mean, I was working 70, 80 hour weeks going between animation. And now we were starting on Mermaid and I got the demo of those songs and you could tell how gifted they were, you know, right from the get. And I had the added advantage. I had taken, there was a BMI uh, Broadway workshop that was given for many years by a conductor named Layman Engel. Alan Menken went through it. Bobby, everybody went through it in New York and you could also do it in LA. So I had done it in LA and I really studied theater writing so that when I met Howard and Alan, I had a, I wasn't just a pop rock guy. I, I really understood how theater songs functioned up to a point. Yeah. Yeah. But then Howard really schooled us. I mean, that's, that, you know, it was like going to the best grad school you could possibly go to, you know, just how a song functions, learning which songs were going to get cut. Cause I would watch other animated companies try to do what we were doing and they didn't understand the principle that, that when you start the song, something has to occur to the story that by the time you get to the back, your character has changed in some way. Right. They would, they would just do a song kind of like, woo, whoop de doo and a little dance, and the movie would stop. And so I used to say to our writers, we're not writing any of those because we're going to cut them. You know, they're, they're not going to hold up in a preview. So, so the song really had to, uh, which is really the genius of Howard Ashman, the song is is propelling the story along. Yeah, and it actually became the script. Yeah. And what was so great about those early movies, especially Mermaid, was, you know, Howard had an office right next to Ron and John's office over on Flower Street. And so as the thing was being written, it was constantly being written together. It wasn't like, oh, we have this fixed script that we're in love with. Now you have to wedge these songs in. Everything was happening simultaneously. And so, you know, to the present day, when we started on Frozen, John Lasseter had asked me, I want to do something like The Little Mermaid. I really want it to be completely integrated because we had done um, Tangled, but it was a little bit more of a movie with songs in it. It wasn't mm -hmm. quite a full musical. 
And I said, well, if you want to do it, then we have to do it the way we did it with Ron and John and Howard and Alan, which is we have to meet all the time. The writers can't get ahead of each other. They have to keep working. And so Bobby and Kristen would be in Brooklyn on a call like this. Mm-hmm. And Jen and Chris Buck and Tom McDougall and I and Peter Del Deco would be in Burbank. And we would meet two and three t- times a week as we were developing the script and the songs. So yeah. I'm, I'm surprised that other studios never figured it out, but they never really did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's and, what I love. Well, that's what I love about this. If I can interject, this is yeah. the fact that the, it's not treated as an afterthought. It is the primary focus of, of, of what you did with, with the Disney, uh, with, with Disney is that you could take the songs. Of course they go through a transformation, but you can experience the entire film of just the music and understand the progression of all the characters and even taken as a standalone piece of music. You, there's a progression and story that goes on with every one of those pieces, which is, which is great. Well, it's why the contrast started getting to be too great for me between working in live action and in animation, because live action was still music was an afterthought a lot of the time. I mean, they might give a lot of, words to it but in the end of the day they wouldn't lock their picture the poor composer was chasing the movie and it was so i'd leave beauty and the beast and i'd go into a room with ernest saves christmas and i go i can't reconcile these two experiences (laughs) at the same time it's trying to hold two opposite thoughts um and and we made some very good live action movies i worked on good morning vietnam and dead Mm -hmm. poet society so um but eventually i chose animation in the stage because we were so much more actively allowed to be in. I was in the story room. I wasn't just a music guy that was kind of shunted off to the side. Right. And by that point I knew I'd been through 10 or 15 musicals where a lot of my people would be coming in and they had only done one or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious. Uh, did, did you feel like when you got onto uh, animation with the, the little mermaid, uh, I mean, obviously Howard and Alan made your life easy, right? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly the architecture of of Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and to a large extent, Aladdin were all laid by them. Yeah. And that's why people would always ask me, you know, what's your favorite movie? And it's almost impossible. I think there's 300 or something. But I said one of the most important ones to me personally was Lion King because it was the first time Howard was like my training wheels. Mm. And when he passed during the making of Aladdin, um, everybody kind of in the room, just their eyes went to me and kind of went, well, you're going to keep doing this, right? As mm. if I was creating it, which I wasn't. You know, I was producing, I helped producing it, but I wasn't writing it. And I think the challenge for Hans and Mark Mancini and I was, how do we do that same thing with Elton John songs that we've just been doing with, with Howard Ashman, Alan Mankin songs, which are much more geared to be theatrical. Hmm. Elton was an incredible writer, obviously, but he hadn't really been through it yet. He hadn't written out a Billy Elliot or Aida or any of those things. So, but to his credit, I'd have to say he gave us his songs with carte blanche other than the time we took, can you feel love tonight out of the movie? (laughs) How did he feel about that? How did he feel about that? Well, I, I think, you know, in those days, and this is not that uncommon, I mean, they cut over the rainbow temporarily out of the uh, Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey wanted to cut part of your world because at that point they were afraid of kids getting restless. Sure. And 
what Elton very articulately said, this is about the circle of life. You have to have this love song because eventually Simba and Nala are going to continue these generations. And I think that kind of won Roger and Rob over. And also we needed a tentpole song and I had it. I mean, I knew it was going to be a giant hit. And luckily Jeffrey, you know, listened to, to us and he, we put it back in the movie. It was only out for a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but th- I'm proudest, I think, of that one in a way because I had to f- feel that we could do it without Howard. Yeah, yeah. Did you did did you feel as though on every one of the films there were there was a little bit of shuffling going on where songs were you know written and then pulled out and then put back in? Did that was that a common thing to happen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't. I'm working on a musical now, and it, it, it it's always the same thing. You have a song, you think it's completely locked into the story. Everything's working great. But then as you change something in the script, it may completely upend either requiring a whole new song or at least a complete lyric relook at and maybe a different arrangement. So, I mean, as John Lasser used to say, thank God for release dates. Because <laughs> that was yeah. the only time I knew I was done. Right, right. I mean, we always used to joke that uh, we never finished the picture. We just released it. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> and musicals, I think, are the most like that because in most cases, your filmmakers, other than Ron and John, didn't do multiple musicals. They hadn't been through it. They yeah. may have been animators. They may have already even directed an animated film. But an animated musical is so different because, as we talked about, the songs – have to be created at the same time and, and it's new for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, certainly Ron and John had done uh, the great mouse detective, which was not a musical. And then from there they went on to the little mermaid. Uh, so certainly uh, from all accounts, uh, Howard Ashman was, was the anchor uh, for, for sort of translating musical theater into animation. Yes. I mean, we would have, it would have taken us, if you look at the jump from Oliver and Company to Mermaid, it was only about two years probably in chronological time, mm. but in create creative musical terms, it was light years. Yeah. You know, I mean, Oliver had some good songwriters in it, but they were still finding that old model of, hey, let's get Billy Joel to sing this one and let's get Barry Manilow to write that one. So I quickly learned the lesson that you really can't do a great musical without a solidly locked in team who are constantly working with you and not just popping in to drop a song in. Yeah. Yeah. Did, um, you know, I, I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, was regarding how do you find some of these people? How do they, how do they come up on your radar? I guess. Well, I was a real stickler for melody because I felt like those early Walt movies, Snow White and Dumbo and, um, you know, they all really relied on these classic songs, Pinocchio, When You Wish Upon a Star. So if I couldn't find the trouble with the theater writers of that time, a lot of them were popular in New York, but their shows didn't go wide in a sense. They were respected writers, but they couldn't write the bigger melody that Alan can write. So I started to cast, we had originally approached Tim Rice to write um, The Lion King. Mm-hmm. And there had been some talk about Tim saying, suggesting maybe we work with ABBA first because he had done chess with them. And that's quite a great score. Uh, But they were at the height of their popularity. And then 
Tim said, you know who I think would be great would be Elton John. So we went to uh, England, I think. I think Tom probably did it, Schumacher. And Elton was intrigued and wound up doing it. And from then on, I, I looked wherever I thought there was a great melody composer whose music wouldn't date. So that's why I went after Phil Collins. That's why I went after Sting, because these were people with 20 and 30 year track records of writing great popular songs. And they were very smart. I mean, Sting is brilliant. Phil is brilliant. So whatever they didn't know about theater writing, I could teach them, but I couldn't teach them to write, you know, you'll be in my heart. Yeah, yeah. You have to have that. I can make a songwriter a little better, but I can't. I used to liken my job to being a high-end track coach. And I'm working with these sprinters who are always already really fast. And I'm studying tape going, if you lifted your left knee a little higher, maybe you could cut a, you know, a tenth of a second off. And that's what I was always trying to be for them was a sounding board. So as they would, you know, write stuff, I, I could give them really honest feedback at a time when their record companies weren't. You know, nobody told Phil Collins what to write. He, he wrote his album and they handed it in and they put it out. Yeah. So the first time I went, well, you know, Phil, I don't think that part's good enough. It was like, and then I put my hand over the phone because he was in <laughs> somewhere else. And I went, I just told Phil Collins his song isn't good enough. I put my head back to the phone. He went, right, I'll call you back. And that was You'll Be In My Heart. He had had the chorus already and the chorus was perfect. But the verse was not fully realized yet. And he called me back the next day with the exact song that won the Oscar and had, was the hit. Wow. And, and how, how do some of these artists take that kind of feedback if they're not used to getting that kind of feedback? Well, everyone's different. I mean, I don't think I ever really gave Elton that kind of feedback because we mostly took his, his songs and then we would Africanize him if it was Lion King or we sure. theatricalize him if it was Aida. You know, working with Sting, I think, was hard for him because he wasn't used to that at all. Um, and generally, I didn't have to. You know, he would, he was so prepared. Uh, he had written volumes of lyrics for Roger, our director. I mean, he showed me a notebook that he had that, I mean, he, he's a real craftsman. Sure. So in most cases, they took it because I wasn't trying to assert any sort of anything other than I want this to last for 50 years. Yeah. And in my opinion, this part could be stronger. And as long as I scratched an itch they already had, then they would go, okay, let me take another shot at it. Whereas someone like Alan Menken, who's written, you know, hundreds, I mean, hundreds or hundreds of show songs, he's used to it. Yeah. I mean, and what, when we, when Alan and I would do a musical often, he would play me melodies over the phone when we were doing Enchanted. Yeah. And he'd go, He'd play me that da 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 working song, but it didn't have a lyric. It was just that melody. And I said, okay, well, that's in the movie. I don't, you know, and wait a minute, you just kind of, the Zoom thing just kind of went somewhere. Well, that is a brilliant song. I mean, and it's it's interesting, you know, not everyone has that type of ear, Chris. I mean, maybe it's because you came up in that whole L.A., uh, first call you were working, you know, uh, with that same group, like the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt and all that, th those type of songwriters being a songwriter yourself and saying, I, I know we can craft this to be better, or I can spot a hit when I hear it. You've got that ear. Yeah. I, I actually with Alan and especially I, my, the hair stands up on my arms when I know I have it. 
it's it's just like if you hit your knee with a hammer in the doctor's office and stuff. And I know it sounds kind of silly, but I did come to trust that if I felt that feeling that a lot of other people were going to as well. And sometimes I wouldn't even hear the whole song. Like um, when I got Elton's demo for Can You Feel the Love Tonight, I listened to the verse and chorus and I went, well, that's a hit. And I didn't even, I, I stopped and started it over again. And just to play that chorus, and I called Katzenberg, who was my boss at the time, and said, I know we have one already. And I hadn't even heard the rest of the song. It was just, it was so obvious that what he had done, and he was singing it, and it's very similar to the final record we put out three years later. I mean, he came back and re-sang it, but the piano part is his original demo. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, it, well, which I, is unheard of, right? I'm sorry? Yeah, that's unheard of, isn't it? I mean, to use the original demos uh, for the yeah. final? I mean, I think Paul McCartney occasionally probably did on some of his stuff. And I think Phil Collins did some of his solo stuff that way. Oh, yeah. But I, I just assumed when I went to London, there was going to be a whole new thing. And I went and to the producer, Chris Thomas, I said, Chris, that piano sounds very familiar. He goes, that's the one you've had. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. I think I think Phil went had that process within the air tonight. That was very, very much a demo uh, with his yeah. drum machine. And it ended up being the number one record in that in that era. So that was that's that's really amazing. But it is great, though, that you can hear those songs and say, I got I got it. You know, that's what radio programmers in another life. I was a radio programmer. I was an assistant uh, PD at a radio station. And when you would hear 10 seconds of a song and be like, that's going to make it, that's going to really hit. And then of course it does. And, and it's just kind of gratifying, but I mean, that comes after years and years of just hearing and working in, in, and knowing the music and the craft like you do. What's well, funny, you know, you, you can also tell by the people around you when I was working on beauty, I was also working on cocktail that the uh, bartender movie with Tom Cruise. Yeah. We, we sold like seven or 8 million records with that and we had the song Kokomo and I got the demo and it was John uh, Phillips and Mamas and the Papas had written it along with Mike Love, uh, Scott McKenzie from if you're going to San Francisco. And there was a fourth writer, I think too. And anyway, they were doing all the singing the, the beach boys weren't even singing the demo yet. And every assistant on my floor would come down and go, what's that song? Well, who is that? And you just knew that that was going to be a number one record. And the Beach Boys hadn't had a number one record in probably 10, 12 years at that point. And it was their last really, really big hit. And so that was really, really fun. When you heard something that was just so well done, you knew it was going to um, overcome any resistance that radio might have to an older band. You know, Phil was getting in, into his late 40s when we were working on Tarzan, which is yeah. not the typical hit single age group, you know. And yet the song was so strong and the production was so great, it happened. So yeah, you know, yeah. I always looked at it. If I get the architecture of the song right, I can worry about all the other stuff. That's icing. I have to get the cake right first. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you mentioned uh, Sting and Roger. We had Roger Allers on uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and actually talked quite a bit about Kingdom of the Sun, which eventually became the Emperor's New Groove. Right. Were, were there some Sting songs that he had written early on that just never made it into Emperor's New Groove that you wish had been put in? Well, yeah, oh, absolutely. He had one, he had a love song that he wrote and so um, I asked Sting if he would record it, and he did it as a duet. And I went down to Austin, and I'm trying to remember, uh, Sean Colvin. Ah, uh, nice. 
And so I went to the studio and said, look, Sting has spent three years on this. He's given up an incredible amount of his own personal recording time to do this project with us. And now we've changed the movie so substantively. It's really more of a buddy comedy now. So most of these songs he wrote were for another movie, but I'd still like to put them on the soundtrack. So if you go to the Emperor's New Groove soundtrack, almost all the great Sting stuff is still there. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Wow. Uh, and, and he, and, and I take it, he was, he was obviously very professional about it all, but frustrated. Oh, he was bummed. It, it was, you know, he was very close with Roger. Yeah. I think he had really bought into the original concept of what Roger wanted to do. And as we all did, it was beautiful. I mean, the artwork was beautiful for it. So when it, when it finally was coming unraveled, he actually uh, wrote me a letter of resignation and Sting did. Sting, and really? <laughs> so very proper. You know, he was a school teacher, you know. So I, I said, I can't have this because we already had one song we knew was going to be in the movie and I needed an end credit. And they had already started on one that was really, really strong. I thought it would be an Academy Award nomination. So I flew to New York and I literally went to his apartment and I handed him this letter. I said, I'm refusing your resignation. <laughs> he looked at me like, you, you are so crazy or ballsy or something, you know. But I explained what I meant and he said, okay, I'll, I'll finish it. And then he did. And it did get nominated. And he did perform it on the Academy Awards. So awesome. yeah. you know, it had it never had a happy ending, but at least that took some of the st- the pain, the sting out. Like, you were going to say the sting out of the sting. <laughs> I, I could, I could see that coming a mile away. Like bad humor by Leonard Pinsk. <laughs> <laughs> How important was it uh, for uh, a for songs to be nominated for an Academy Award? But did you feel during the process that uh, this has got to be nominated for an Academy Award? Yeah, a lot of the time I did. We, I used to tell Michael Eisner. I don't judge our success just by how many records we sell, although that's important, or how big the film grosses, although obviously that's what we're all in this for. Um, I would say when we would go to my high school, uh, my son's high school musical concert, and they'd be singing A Whole New World in the seventh grade, and they'd be singing, then I knew that we had penetrated culture. Mm -hmm. And that was that was going to make these movies then last the way Walt's era's movies did. I sure. always felt that our musicals, both for their longevity in home entertainment, but also at the parks. So the, our movies that didn't have song scores tended to be very popular, like of the musicals, but then they burned very fast. Yeah. And, and um, people watch our musicals over much more than they tend to watch the non-musicals. And they're generational. They they cross generations. Well, and that's why I never wanted to arrange the music in any way that sounded like an ear. Yeah. And, and I would argue with people sometimes. They'd go, well, let's make it more sound like K-pop or something. I went, no, because in 2040, I want that five-year-old to love it the way the kid liked it in 1995. Right. So I had, I had a very purposeful way of looking at making sure all the arrangements felt classic and even though I was trying to find some blend between pop music and theater music and use the vocabulary of pop music so that a wider audience would like it, but use the kind of intelligence and storytelling of the theater to make the songs more important to the movie. Yeah. And so we were always, you know, Howard and Alan were theater writers, but they had grown up with the Beatles and Billy Joel. 
So their language wasn't like Frank Lesser or Rogers and Hammerstein. They were, they were young people. Sure. And we were in our mid thirties, I think when we started on mermaid. So, you know, I, I think it was really important to me that if we got the right kind of melody, I was pretty sure that we were going to get a nomination at least. And at one point we were up to like 45 nominations in 20 some years. And there's only two categories. So yeah. we, we were literally averaging, you know, two a year. Mm. Mm. Hi, you know, let's talk for a moment just about the uh, the orchestration, uh, you know, the, the composer who's writing the scores for these uh, films. Obviously, Alan is in, in a class almost by himself. But but how do you how do you go about picking a composer that you say, I'm going to pair this guy with this lyricist? Well, in a couple, a good example would be a, a guy, Mark Mancino, who I think you know. Mark mm-hmm. went on to do The Lion King with Joey Tamar, but he was our secret weapon on the original Lion King. He did a lot of the arranging with Hans. Uh, we worked on Can't Wait to Be King together, a bunch of other things. And so I knew that Mark was a great collaborator, so that when we did Tarzan, I thought, Phil needs a musician that's going to support him. And I knew that Mark already knew how to take Elton John songs and put them into a theatrical and a, and, a, and a film cinematic context. So I made the marriage between them. And then later on, when Tom McDougall brought in uh, Lin-Manuel and Opataya to do Moana, we brought Mark Mancini in again, almost recreating the combination of Hans, Lebo, and Mark. But now it's Opataya, Lin, Mark, you know, and it worked out fantastic. So. I wanted somebody that would be, would use the themes that the songwriters wrote and be comfortable with that because some song, some composers really want to write all their own music. Yeah. It's understandable, but in my case, and it's interesting, if you listen to the Lion King, Hans basically wrote all original music. I don't think he really quotes Elton, but it's also seamless. You don't really, you don't notice that in a way. And also because the pieces are so strong. Yeah. You know, like the, the piece when Mufasa dies, I mean, every time I hear it, and, and I've heard it thousands of times because I worked on the stage show and I've seen it all over the world. And I see the effect that that music has on people in South Africa and Shanghai and Tokyo. And, you know, great music transcends culture and it, it transcends everything. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the, um, the, I guess the real question that I want to ask you now is that transition from the animated film to the, to the stage. Uh, and, and, and you, you, at that point, when they formed Disney theatrical, you had already been working at Disney animation studios with Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher, who are both from the theater world. Yes. Uh, and, and they were kind of back in their element with Disney. Disney theatrical. Um, what what challenges are there to translate the animated film onto stage? Well, Beauty was the first, and a lot of that came from Rob Roth originally, uh, pitch, our director pitching Michael Eisner. So I didn't work on Beauty quite as much, and also because they had such a fully realized score, they only had to add a few songs. Whereas for most of our other animated movies, we generally only had five or six songs. And the movies are only about 85, 90 minutes. 
a Broadway show is probably two hours and 20. And so you necessarily like Frozen, I think Bobby and Kristen wrote another 14 or 15 pieces, maybe 16 to augment the Frozen songs. And so, and also it gives you an opportunity to go that length of time. And the fact that your audience is much more adult, you're allowed to go deeper into the story. So it allowed us to spend more time with, with uh, Elsa, mm-hmm. give her more numbers, try to get inside her head a little bit more. You know, she's not really in the movie that much, if you think about it. Right. Let It Go was such a powerful experience. People don't realize it's, it's really Anna's movie to a certain extent. Whereas in the stage show, it gave us the opportunity to really explore both of them a lot more. And so I loved it. I mean, it was really... I really fell in love with the theater because you could have an idea that morning and see it that night. Whereas in animation, I could have an idea and I wouldn't see it for three years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's true. Yeah. Um, Is it, uh, I guess I've always looked at like our animated films when we finished an animated film and it it started to go out into the world. Uh, you always wanted to present it in a different medium uh, differently. You, you, you're taking a familiar property, but you're doing something different with it that isn't just a replication of the animated feature, right? Well, I mean, I think Julie Tamer and Lion King is the perfect example of what you just said. She came down to Orlando to pitch us some of her initial ideas with um, Elton's manager, John Reed and Eisner and Peter and Tom and I. And I called Barb and I said, if I could mortgage our house, I would put every penny I had into what I just saw the last hour. It was such a tour de force. She already had a lot of the costume design. She had some of the, the mechanisms of how she would move characters. And she really, really dove into Lebo and Lebo South Africanness to make sure that all the new songs that we had, a lot of them were from Rhythm of the Pride Lands, the follow-up album we had made. Yeah. Uh Some of which was based on Han's music, some was Lebo's music. And Julie fully embraced Africa at a level that certainly the film did, but she went so deep into it. And then because we had so many of the South Africans in our companies, so that when you open act two with one by one and they're all over the stage and that guy goes, you know, it's like a freaking jet plane taking off, you know? And that was, I think Julie, her reconception of the film, keeping all the good stuff, but then making it so much more, it's why it's the number one show in history. And why it's still running all over the world, because I, I have to say, I've seen it a number of times yeah. and, and, and to see the circle of life uh, on Broadway, you know, in a Broadway live theater setting uh, it is so much more of an experience than to see it on the, uh, the beginning of the animated film, which was fantastic when we first saw that. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, when we went to Black and that big boom at the end of that thing. Yeah. That was pretty amazing, too. That We were in, I think, Van Nuys or something in the Upper Valley for that preview when it became The Lion King. Yeah. Don and I kind of looked at each other and went, what if we just, <laughs> what's going on here, you know? <laughs> we, knew, we thought it was good, but we had no idea that we would get the response we got. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, um, uh, what, what, uh, uh, determines, uh, I'm, I'm just going to jump around a little bit here, but I'm just curious what determines the success of an album? Um, 
Well, I would say when when there were still a lot of album sales, you know, before streaming and before. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In those days, a lot of it was a combination of a really great song score and probably at least one hit. You know, like Beauty and the Beast was my, the first hit I had because I couldn't do Part of Your World. Flipping Your Fins, you just couldn't get that on the radio. And so we didn't go after Mermaid the way we did. And when I started working on Beauty and the Beast as a single, all my record business friends said, you could, you can't have a hit with a song called Beauty and the Beast in the title. And, and I said, well, it's the only one I've got. It's a great melody and, and I'm going to try. And I was fortunate enough to find Celine Dion, who was, had just released her first album in America and had a hit. But Columbia or Sony, I guess it was, they were still Columbia. They had so much riding on her. They, they so believed in her because she was already a big hit in Canada. Yeah. That they really put their force behind us. And then Peebo Bryson, who did the, the uh, duet with her, did a fantastic job. So once I got that one, I could see that it was possible to continue to do it. And we had... You know, Whole New World then became our first number one and is still up there with Let It Go as the most popular Disney song, more more so than even When You Wish Upon a Star. But back in the day, how many records was that translate into? Is it like, you know, uh, what's a success uh, in numbers, like 500,000 record sales or? Mer- you know, Mermaid and Beauty and Domestically were like four or five million each. And that, that, that's a success, right? I mean, oh, that's yeah. like, yeah, you were like, wow. Yeah. Ranking was one of the biggest records I ever worked on. We were selling three and 400,000 a week for months. Wow. And I don't even know what the number is. It's 25 or 30 million worldwide. It's and, and it's still crazy. selling, right? I mean, it's still selling. Yeah. Yeah. And then when the live action movie came out, it brought it all back and Beyonce brought all the attention to it. So it's, it, it's, it gradually started to slow down because music was changing in the late nineties and it wasn't possible to get those kind of ballads through, you know, urban music had taken over so much and rap that it was harder to have a traditional kind of ballad, no matter how I gussied it up. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, you'll be in my heart from Phil. We were able to make that a hit and let it go is interesting because we did the Demi Lovato end credit version for sort of our younger radio type audience. But if you looked at the performances and stuff, Adina's version and hers were sort of neck and neck. And Adina's eventually wound up being the longer lasting one, because I think so many people had seen the movie. They identified more with her performance as Elsa. Yet, you know, Demi's was very good. And we we made a very different record out of it. We kind of streamlined some of the chords. It's got a much different kind of rhythm track. Um, It was fun. It was like doing a like a jigsaw puzzle, trying to take these melodies and try to reconform them for 2000 or for 2012. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm imagining that uh, the nightmare, but you were involved with nightmare before Christmas, weren't you? And, yeah. and I'm imagining that the writing process was similar to mermaid or beauty and the beast. Uh, as far as the songs were driving the storyline. Oh yeah. Danny had written a lot of the score. Um, and so we were writing in and out of his songs to a certain extent. I don't remember exactly who was creating what, when, you know, Carolyn Thompson, I think was a screenwriter. And Tim was certainly very involved. Um, I, but I, I, had, I had the pleasure of, uh, I was working on a different record, but Danny was in the next studio for me when he was doing all the demos. So I would go sit with him at the board and he was singing everything. I mean, yes. mm-hmm. it was unbelievable what he could do. And he had never done it before. 
And, you know, he used to be poo-pooed a lot by the more traditional composers. Oh, he's not trained in all this stuff. And he goes on to have one of the greatest careers in film music history. Oh, absolutely. Because he's just so smart and talented. Um, Nightmare actually was one of my favorites because it wasn't like Disney in that sense. It was right. much edgier and um, a little bit more grown up in some respects and, and dark. And we, were, mm-hmm. we weren't really in the dark business. And for me, it was kind of fun to do something so different than the other movies I was working on at the same time. And, and that's a film that's really grown an audience. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, when it went out initially, its initial release, it did okay. It didn't do great. But but it has just sustained for all of these years. And I mean, we're approaching a 30th anniversary in a couple of years. And, you know, that's a film that has, just keeps building its audience and it is more popular year over year. Well, you know, we found that with the Newsies musical, too, because when I worked on the movie, and the movie didn't do that well. It, it had some weak aspects to it. Mm-hmm. But over the years, kids kept buying the video cassette. And Tom Schumacher and I did a lecture one time at Emerson College, and one of the kids got up during the Q&A and said, when are you going to do the Newsies musical? And we looked at each other like, well, maybe we'll just do it for licensing. So we just developed it as a licensed piece. And then there was so much attention when we put it on in New Jersey that we wound up with a, a national audience, a touring company. And it was all because the kids had seen those songs over and over for two decades and they could sing Santa Fe. They knew all that stuff. And I think that's the same thing that happened for nightmare. Can you, can you just, talk a little bit for our audience sake about the licensing uh, because I think there's a lot of people do who don't realize that uh, high school uh, you know music programs could can license like you know Beauty and the Beast to put on a show and what's entailed in those packages you know I don't know all the details but I do know that you know we have a huge program for it and there are a number of our musicals that we've developed that we've never taken to Broadway and that um, we have a whole theatrical part of office within our theatrical group that just does the licensing of shows to colleges, high schools, organizations and stuff. And they pay a certain royalty. I don't think it's a really gigantic amount of money, but there's, you know, thousands of performances of Disney musicals going on across the country every day. And, and they get like the the the, the sheet music and, and yes. uh, various aspects that help them put on their yes. production of Beauty and the Beast or whatever the show it is. It allows us to have a certain amount of quality control. So we mm-hmm. give them a certain amount of the materials that we know they can't, you know, mess with too much. Yeah, yeah, got it. The whole aspect of uh, changing our animated films into or, or trans, translating our animated films now into live action. You've been involved in some of those uh, before you retired. Uh, what, what, what's the difference with those? Is it just a live action version of our animated films or how do you view them? Well, I think it depends on who the filmmaker is. Um, you know, I worked on Aladdin. I didn't work that much with uh, director Guy Ritchie, but I worked a lot with Alan Menken on it. And I went to the scoring and the mixing and all that stuff. I, um, I worked a little bit on Lion King. And John Favreau was very open about it and saying, this piece is so well known. It's kind of, you know, it's really so beloved. I have to gauge how much to add or not because there's a certain covenant you have with an audience for these movies. 
that if you skew too far away, you disappoint them. Yeah. But if you don't add, you know, like they added a great song in Beauty and the Beast um, for the dad and, and a little bit of a backstory about his wife. And I thought that was really great because the movie could take it. It didn't feel like they were trying to jam something new in it. It did feel organically part of the overall. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky process because live action is so much more a director's medium. Mm-hmm. You know, in animation, obviously the directors are very important, but there's a huge crew of people that are all, we have story teams. There's so many other people involved. Um, so my job was always, when I worked on the live actions, you have to create a relationship with your director. And I tried to be also for John, they were casting about for the opening as to who should sing Circle of Life. And they went through a very similar process that we did where we had talked about a lot of celebrities for a while and there were different people. Elton would put somebody's name up, but I always had Carmen Twilley who had been a backup singer in Hollywood who was in all our previews. And I kept saying, you know, I can't beat her. She sounds like mother nature. Mm. And so when John asked me point blank, would you do it with a star? I said, the song is the star. Your movie's the star. I don't, I don't want to hear some, I don't want to hear Adele singing circle of life in the scene. If she wants to sing at the end of the movie, fantastic. But in, at that moment in time, I want the singer to represent nature. And we wound up using one of our Rafiki's from the London company, I think to sing it. And I'm really glad, you know, because it, it gave it a universality and it also, it's a South African singing it. And I think that's pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, that whole, that whole idea of, of getting, uh, the name, uh, obviously weighs in on some of these decisions because that's part of the marketing, right? So-and-so singing this or whatever, but, but when, when do you sit there and say, no, I mean, that's, you just gave one example, but, but when you really believe in somebody who's not a name, uh, that could become a name, uh, you know, and you're giving them that opportunity. When do those things come along? Boy, you know, there are some, we could do a whole separate podcast on all the famous <laughs> people we work with. Some of the ones we almost worked with. Um, I had a completely different experience on Pocahontas where everybody felt strongly we need a native American woman to sing it. And it's a colors of the wind is a very difficult song to sing. It's very high and rangy. And we had an unbelievable demo from Judy Kuhn, who's a Broadway star. And I, I, rem- I remember that, Chris. Yeah. I remember that demo because I just thought, wow, when I first heard that, that I was like, I hope they don't change that one bit. So, so they kept asking me and I auditioned a number of uh, Native American women. And I lost, and at one point they had me have an Indian woman come in I, from India. And I went, you guys are out of your mind. And finally, we were in a theater one day watching some dailies and Katzenberg turned to me and went, okay, you can have her. And I knew exactly what he meant. He, I, had out, I had outlasted everybody and I got <laughs> Judy Kuhn. So even though Judy doesn't play the part in the film, it is a Native American actress, I got the singer I wanted because my feeling was always I had to have the best athlete. I didn't mm-hmm. care if they were the most famous athlete, but they had to be the best. And... You know, for example, you know, Mel Gibson does his singing in Pocahontas and he could carry a tune. And the only thing that occasionally some of the non-professionals couldn't do is they can't hold notes that well because mm. it's not in their experience. So sometimes they'll go all of my life I da, 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 like this. 
And sometimes I would get a separate singer just to hit the note and hold it to round out the performance. But the performance was by that actor. Hmm. And and that uh, speaking of Pocahontas, the uh, "If I Never Knew You" uh, oh. that song got got chopped out for the very reason you talked about early on in, in our discussion, where the audience starts, the kids start to get a little antsy, right? Can you talk a little about that one? Yeah, it, we had a beautiful ballad at the end, but one of our principles was we never put ballads in Act Three. By Act Three, you want to, you know, like. Generally, if you follow and track an animated movie, um, you're learning about everything in Act One. Act Two is the kind of the meat of the thing, and toward the end of Act Two, everything goes to hell, right? And, and you're at your lowest ebb, and then Act Three is revving back up, and and you don't want anything to slow the rev back up. And so, so no, no ballads, right? So we're there in a theater in Ventura. I remember it really specifically, and Alan was there, and Katzenberg, and a bunch of us, and. The, the song came on and literally we all looked at each other. The lights came up after the preview was over and then we went, well, that's gone. You know, it, it went out within about 20 minutes of seeing it with an audience. It just couldn't sustain. And then fortunately I was able to make a, um, a pop version of it with my friend, Robbie Buchanan, a duet. And it's one of my favorite songs in, in the film actually. And I think we put it as the second end credit. And it's yeah. a good song, but it just couldn't hold at that point. It, 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 they did add it back in for the 10th anniversary DVD release. That's right. Uh, That's right. Because uh, all the animation had been done uh, right. uh, either in rough or cleanup animation. So it was really about putting it in color uh, and finishing it off. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I know we, we had talked to Mike Gabriel uh, many months ago uh, on this show and and he he was fighting tooth and nail to try and keep that song in because he loved it so much. Yeah, sure. But well, he uh, but he said with that screening, uh, he realized he wasn't going to win that battle. No, it was it was not possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I take it, I, I, those are, the, I mean, that's part of the process, really. I mean, how many times have you sat in those kinds of screenings and said, oh, we're going to have to remove that or, or move it or do something? Yeah, it happened a lot, especially sometimes because of length. Yeah. You really lay it all end to end. It's hard to always kind of sense the rhythm of the movie. And some songs would overstay their welcome a little bit. Um but in most cases, we generally kind of already knew and had already done the cutting before we even got to an audience. We, we were professional enough by that point that in our own internal screenings, we could see if something wasn't working. And if somebody felt adamant and wanted to fight for it, you know, we were open to each other's arguments, certainly. And thank God, you know, Howard convinced Jeffrey to put Part of Your World back in. I mean, we could have literally made that movie without that song. And think of all the places Alan uses it and up on the rocks and the reprises. Mm. I mean, it's the heart and soul of the movie. And it was, it was just Jeffrey's inexperience. He hadn't really worked on musicals at that point. So he was just doing his music, his uh, film thing, which I understand. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it's really uh, interesting when, when you start to, to peek behind these, these films, I'm curious about, um, uh, the orchestration, uh, do you have a favorite venue, a, a favorite place where you like to record uh, the, the uh, score of a film? You know, I was fortunate enough. We had, in, in the 90s, we still had quite a few stages. We had Radford, 
in Studio City. We had, um, Colum- I mean, what you call MGM down at um, in Culver City and Fox. And then, of course, we went to London occasionally. So we had a lot of different places. What you did need, though, was a, a good size room with a great, you know, recording desk and all that sort of stuff. I mean, the L.A. musicians are probably one of the greatest creative groups of any of the film industry. I mean, these people come in, they've never seen the music before. Sometimes we rehearse the cues three times with them, and that's the version you hear in the film, and it's already completely nailed. You know, that would be a, that would be a really fun thing for your audience to sit in one of those sessions. I used to like to invite a lot of the people that had worked on the film, whether from the story department or the art department, just to have a day, we'd set up a row of chairs in the back so that they could experience their work. But now with this music being put to it and to see how, you know, Alan had written this cue or that was pretty thrilling. Cause I, after a while I'd done it so long, I almost got the pleasure of seeing it fresh through their eyes when they would come in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I loved going to uh, the Clint Eastwood recording stage oh, over yeah. at Warner Brothers. Yeah. Uh, we, we did a whole bunch of projects there. The Rescuers uh, there, which I love that big drum. Were you there the day of the big drum opening? No, no, I wasn't there for that. Bruce brought in, had brought in probably like every percussionist in Hollywood. I mean, we must have 20 or 30 people in addition to the orchestra. And when that shot and we had that kind of swooping thing going on, it was like hair raising. <laughs> it really is an experience. I have to say, you know, people can get a little bit of a, um, a sense of it from, I, I did that documentary, the tunes behind the tunes. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we shot a bunch of stuff at the Capitol, uh, Capitol records, uh, recording, uh, stage a, um, uh, and they can get a sense of it from that. But, uh, I always, I always loved going to those sessions. Uh, and can you talk a little bit for the audience? about how you go about pulling an orchestra together and, you know, what determines whether it's going to be a, you know, 28 piece band or 85 or 120. Well, we had certain size orchestras. We usually did like an A size, which would be our largest. And depending, it could be anywhere from 65 to hundred, like Randy Newman often used hundred players for the uh, Pixar movies. Um, and then we'd have a B for some of the smaller cues, and then even a C orchestra, maybe of 20 or 30 for some pickup things. But look, there were, most of the music was with the A orchestra, and we would have contractors who had done multiple movies with us. So they tended to pick the players that had already played on a lot of our animated scores, really knew the stylistic we were going for. Um, we didn't want things to date, as I said earlier, so we were always going for as classic a sound as possible. Um, it was really, the big difference too is animation so slow. You know, it's like the formation of oil. The dinosaur has to die and go into the ground. <laughs> Whereas, so these people would come from animation and see that for my three hours, I'm like going, because uh, I got a hundred people there and I've got 20 minutes I've got to record. It's not like I can go, oh, I, I, it, it was so expensive if you went overtime. Yeah. Like we were really, really organized and stuff. So it was the one part of the process. I remember when John Lasser first started coming going, wow, you guys have to go really fast, don't you? And I go, yeah. It was the, the one part of animation that was happening in real time. Yeah. And you, you had to capture it. I mean, we could go back and do pickups and things, but 
we were just working at a way different pace. But when you have, you know, 80 musicians on a stage, I mean, the, just the expense of yeah. paying all of those people yeah. and, and, and the stage cost and the engineers and all of that, that goes along with it. Uh, and, and then if you did go into overtime, it was what is, is it, if I remember correctly, it was 15 minute increments, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 I had to have an eternal clock. And I, so on one hand, I'm enjoying myself because I'm hearing this music that I love, but there's another part of me that's just driving and I'm, okay, I think we got that one. Okay, let's go. Uh, let's do that one section over again. But then we got to get going here. We're, we're behind or ahead. I have a music editor next to me that's counting up how many minutes we've gotten into the session so far and what our goal is for that day. And I had to drive it to get it to that goal. And there's somebody literally with a stopwatch, right? Oh yeah. I mean, there, there, there's people on stage with a stopwatch that are, you know, saying, okay, now you have to take the break. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you, so. Yeah. I, I, I was just, I, I was just going to ask uh, uh, what there was some flexibility, right? So if everybody agreed to keep going five more minutes before they took a break or something, I mean, they yeah, could. Yeah, you could, it wasn't like, Gestapo time or anything. There was some leeway in it, but you had to accomplish the stuff within the amount of session time you had booked. And then we would debate and go, let's not use our overtime today. We have a big day coming tomorrow. We're probably going to need it more than then. So let's quit for the day, even though we haven't finished this queue, we'll pick it up. So there was a lot of that sort of jimmying going on, but the goal was always to get the best quality within the time allotted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of those musicians, uh, uh, they've, they, I, I know Rick Baptist who, you know, we had on a couple a month ago or whatever. Uh, Rick had played on, I think the first 14 Pixar scores yeah. and all of the, the Disney animation scores up to frozen. Um, uh, so you had all of these musicians who were used to playing with one another. Absolutely. And they, and they knew what we, and they really liked playing on our movies because I think a couple things. One was a lot of live action started to de-evolute melody after a while. They, a, a lot of scores were starting to go more for atmospheric, vibe, sometimes mm-hmm. darkness. Some directors didn't want things to be too thematic. They thought it might be too old-fashioned or something. And we unabashedly were going for emotion. So our cues were much more primary color in the best of all ways, in the sense of, I wanted those tunes to stick in your head. And they love playing tunes because over time, I mean, obviously there's still great theme writers, James Newton Howard, there's plenty of people that are writing great film scores, but the animated score had a particularly melodic emphasis that I think they really enjoyed. And also when they would look back and see what they were playing too, when that giant screen and all of a sudden, Mrs. Potts is running around, and they're, the, the fiddles are riding with her. It was fun for them. You know, I, I know that they would come up to me after the scores and just have loved playing on them. And, and I've heard from a lot of those musicians that that playing on animated scores, it's hard. Cartoon music is hard uh, often. It's challenging for them, but, that, but that's what they love about it because it's kind of pushing them. Well, we have the, an old expression of if you see a lot of long held whole notes, like uh, like a lot of strings, 
on certain cues, we'll just be going, uh, animations. <laughs> and something, something moves. And as Randy says, you got to hit it, you know? Randy yeah, never, yeah. So that, like, if you look at some of those Pixar scores, like the changing of the doors in uh, Monsters, Inc., is one of the most amazing Gershwin-esque Randy Newman tour de forces. There is so much going on that it was, you almost needed to take a shower if you played on that QF. <laughs> so technically demanding. And because Randy's probably one of the most beloved composers by musicians in Hollywood, yeah. they especially would get up for his scores and they were dying to get at him, you know, because they knew he was going to write some pretty technically challenging music. And, and he's also an incredibly nice guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, really nice man. Uh, yeah. I have to say, I, awesome. I enjoyed talking with him and interviewing him a number of years ago. He, he was just really a, a wonderful person, as uh, most of them are. Yeah. You know, we, we had Bruce Broughton on uh, uh, last year on our show, and he was fantastic, you know. And Mark Waters is a great friend of mine and, and, I, and, a, and a collaborator. I've worked with him many, many times over the years. Uh, but just really terrific folks out there. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all having fun. Wouldn't you say it, it seems yeah, like they, they love what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, they certainly look forward to um, coming onto our pictures and that aspect of it, but it was also a lot of hard work and a lot of change. You know, we were trying to lock the movies as best we could, but as you know, the movies became CGI, we had a lot more leeway to change later. Yeah. So we started pushing the envelope and that put pressure on them because they had to do more of the scoring later. Oh, it was starting to get a little bit more live action-y because the, the films weren't locking as early as they had before. You know, when we were doing hand-drawn, certain sequences were just, they were done. Yeah. And they weren't really effectively going to change a whole lot. Whereas as time went on, we were working right up to the end on Big Hero 6 and things like that. Yeah. How, how do you feel like the uh, the music recording end of things have changed because I know that a lot of scores are now being done almost remotely in Eastern Europe uh, with, with the, you know, composer, you know, here in the U S and there's, you know, going in via zoom and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, we were fortunate that because of our success, the executives at Disney gave us the kind of budgets we needed to do we didn't, we didn't have to go to Eastern Europe. I mean, that was often for low, lower budget pictures and mm -hmm. indies and things, and for some other studios maybe, because you could cut costs that way. Um, so I didn't have to work remotely, but what's changed now is, especially with the pandemic, I'm working on a musical where we've done all the recordings so far, and I have not left my house in Sonoma. Wow. I'm on the screen, the actors in New York, we send a kit, my engineer, Frank Wolf, sends them a kit that comes with a computer and a microphone and a program, and we plug it in, and all of a sudden their apartment comes into our screen, and then we produce it just the way we would if we were sitting at a board. They go in their closet, and <laughs> because that's the best isolation we can find, and you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference. I mean, I, I believe we'll re-record everything that we've done so far you know, in the, in, for screenings and things, but it's amazing. And it's reminded me now that I probably didn't have to be a 2 million miler on United. Because <laughs> I've gotten a lot done recently without having to go anywhere. And 
I don't miss the the uh, airport lounge. Uh, do, does that give you pause to say like when things uh, uh, reopen and we're through this whole pandemic, which we will be at some no. point, uh, no. do, does it give pause to say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to remote into that or will you get back on to flying here and there? I think for this film, I think we're going to be doing it in London. So I'll, I'll happily go there because I love the musicians there too. And yeah. it's a great experience. In fact, I'm going to London next week for my first trip back to Europe for the uh, Frozen musical opening there. Okay. Because awesome. I'm one of the, the, the producers. Now, uh, the Frozen musical, uh, they closed on Broadway, but uh, is, the, is it the road show or is it going to play in London and it, there is a road show of it? Oh, there's, we've already opened in Australia. We're in previews now in London. We're going to open in Germany. We'll open in Holland. We'll open in Tokyo. Yeah. And, and the road company for America is already rehearsing in, in Buffalo. So I would say within about a year and a half, uh, we'll probably have seven or eight Frozen's up around the world. And, and wh why not on Broadway? Was it just a part of the pandemic, uh, sort of uh, the fallout from the pandemic? I think it was fairly complicated. It was pre-pandemic. I think it was really more that we had a number of shows in New York that were going after the same audience. We mm. had Aladdin, we had Lion King, and Frozen, I think, perhaps in New York, skewed a little young for the New York audience. I mean, Tom Schumacher could probably give you 17 different analyses of, of why they decided to close when they did. Yeah. But I've seen it on the road already and it plays incredibly well. So I'm not concerned about its future. I, I know it, it, there's something about that cultural experience that Frozen was. Yeah. People want experience with their families and stuff. And the show is very tight. So um, I think a, a little bit was our own kind of internal competition. We can't run that many Disney shows at the same time in New York. Cause, because you're, you're essentially cannibalizing your, your audience. Yes. And plus a lot of other shows started to be in that same ilk, you know, Wicked would, could have been a Disney show. And, yeah. and so a lot of people saw our success and well, well, Hey, let's, you know, I, my good friend, Alan Silvestri is in previews tonight for back to the future in London. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, that's going to be a big hit because I can imagine a wife turning to a husband saying, do you want to go see a back to the future musical tonight? And him going, yeah. Whereas there's certain shows you could say that it, and you go, nah, I'm not interested. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of it is the big title. And so I, I, I don't think frozen is going anywhere. Yeah. Good. Good. That's good. Um, uh, I guess my, one of my last questions before we get, we have some listener questions we're going to get to, but one of my last questions to you, Chris, is, and I don't want to ask you what your favorite picture is, but I want to ask you, what, what was the one picture that bubbles to the surface that you say, wow, I had such an incredible experience on that for a multitude of reasons, you know, people you were working with, the location, whatever it was, uh, you know, because I, I often get asked, what's your favorite movie? And it's like, you know, it's, it's like asking what my favorite kid, you know, child is, you know, who, who my favorite child is. You, you really can't do it. But when I start to think about experiences on films, Who Framed Roger Rabbit kind of bubbles to the surface for me because I lived in London 
London and, you know, I worked with an international crew of artists and I had some great experiences there, you know, including Dame Edna. Uh, so, uh, you know, so, so for me, you know, I want to ask you that question. What, what's that one project that kind of bubbles to the surface that says, boy, wow, that was just unbelievable. Well, you know, yeah, it, it is hard because there's so many, but I think one of my personal favorites is Tarzan mm-hmm. because Phil Collins and I forged such a relationship. We literally talked every day, mm-hmm. Monday through Friday. He was in Europe. And so I would call him at nine in the morning, six o'clock his time. He'd be wrapping up for the day. He would play me what he had been working on. We would go through it. He didn't even use an engineer. So literally he and I were the only two people shaping it. And then we would bring it into the the group for um, his spirit. And he was the hardest working person I think I've ever seen. I mean, he just, um, there was no detail too small. And you'd think for somebody at the height of pop stardom and all that. But I think he was so relieved to not be doing a Phil Collins record. You know, he was kind of sick of his own persona. You know, it was a little bit like the backlash that happened with the Bee Gees. They got so popular that they almost had to go away a little bit. And I think he was so relieved to be working on songs about, you know, animals and just uh, and trying new genres that he had never written before. Yeah. And he, we just became like brothers. And then we did Brother Bear together. And then we did a stage show together. So there was about a decade of my life where you know, we spent, you know, constant hours every week. And that was really one of the pleasures of my life. And and when you, when you build those kinds of relationships, those are friends for life, right? I mean, you, you stay in touch with them, right? Oh God. Every, every birthday, my wife gets a giant thing of flowers from Phil and (laughs) Phil is uncle Phil to my kids. And yeah, it, it is a very different kind of relationship. If you do multiple projects, it's like my relationship with Alan Menken. Sure. You know, Alan can just raise his eyebrow and I know exactly what he's thinking. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so great. Al John, we have some listener questions, don't we? Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Answers your email. All right, Chris, here we go. In the hot seat, which which project was the most challenging for you? And this comes from Maine and Magic on Instagram. Whoa. Um, hmm. There were so many that were challenging. There were some that, uh, you know, Moana was interesting because we were trying to do another kind of amalgam thing with a writer, multiple writers, the way we did on Lion King. I think I mentioned that, you know, Op- Opatia Foye and Lynn Manuel Miranda and Mark Mancina. We were trying to forge a group of people. And we really wanted it to be island music. We didn't want it to be Ursat's South Pacific. You know, Ron and John were really strong on that. They had visited a lot. Um, that was quite challenging just to remake a marriage like the Lion King marriage had been made. Frozen was tough because the story was taking a long time to solidify. And John Lasseter w- was really adamant that we were going to hold off um, I'm drawing a blank now on his name, our bad guy, that he really was the bad guy. And it was making it very difficult to, uh, to finish the songs because the story wasn't completely locking down, but every one of them had a different set of variables that made it tricky. Understood that Austin K Arnold, 1787 says, 
Are there any plans to release the film score to Sword in the Stone? And he's got a follow-up question, but uh, I'll have you kind of, you know. Well, that's beyond that. my pay grade because I'm not <laughs> working at the company anymore. So True. that you have to direct to to the head of uh, the record company. I, I really don't know that. I'm sorry. Well, no, I mean, he's got that. And, of course, uh, the Disney Legacy Collection um, in, in release over the next few years. I'm sure – I'm sure there's a lot of thought that goes into those type of things as you've done in the past. Um, I think the fans love the fact that, you know, the legacy collection is out there and that I'm sure they're going to continue to uh, mind that <laughs> for many years to come. I've always loved the uh, album they did with Alan Menken. The, the, is it the, the man behind the songs? Or I can't remember the title of it, but it, it, it has a lot of our demos. It has Alan playing a whole new world for me and Tim Rice's apartment. And there's some stuff that if you're a fan and you want to see how these songs get created, you can hear them in their very early stages. A lot of times when they don't even have a lyric yet and to see how they were developed. So I really love the legacy stuff for that. And, you know, we put out the Lion King legacy a few years ago and we were able to get all of Hans's score finally released, which was a big deal to me because there's so many great pieces of music in that. Um, I, again, that's a little bit why we work so hard to try to make the music timeless so that there would still be an interest in wanting to hear one of these things 20, 30, 40 years later. Love, and and he, hearing some of those early um, uh, demos, uh, sometimes they're they're so great that when you, you know, like I, I go back to Colors of the Wind and Pocahontas, when I first heard the demo for that, I, I just thought, my gosh, that is just so incredible and fantastic. I hope they never change it. And of course they did and they changed it and they made it different. But that demo still stands out to me. Well, you know, it's funny. There were times when, that was a lot of pressure because sometimes those early demos, just like if you're a songwriter or you've been in a band, there's something magical about when something gets created for the first time. I mean, if you hear Burt Bacharach sing one of his songs, he doesn't have a great voice, but he has, he's the composer. So the whole musical thing is coming through him. And my job a lot of times was to try to make sure that I didn't lose anything in the translation mm. from that magical demo like Robbie Robertson did some opening things for us for color of money, like in his upstairs studio with a kind of a rough guitar and he was kind of doing some blues grunting and stuff. And Robbie and I were always going to change it. And Marty Scorsese said, no, no, it's going in. And if you watch color of money, there's a couple early pieces that sound like they're on two instruments because he fell in love with them. He cut the picture to them and we said, okay, that's what you want to use. So you, but most of the time I was trying to make sure that I didn't lose the magic. Yeah. Yeah. So this was going to take you back to the eighties when you were working with uh, the animated afternoon, the, uh, the Disney uh, animated classics, you know, like DuckTales or even um, the gummy bears. Um, right. What, what is your experience uh, looking at and, and getting those pitches for theme music like DuckTales? You were working with Mark Muller, I guess at the time, and he pitched uh, the DuckTales theme to you and you really dug it out of some of the other demos. I mean, uh, what, what's the secret behind finding some of these iconic uh, themes for those, uh, the, like the gummy bears and DuckTales? Well, gummy bears was funny, fun for me because at that time, I, you know, Saturday morning music was made like on one synthesizer. It was, it was very small, generally little combos and stuff. And I had the theme for gummy bears and I went 
And I said, I want to have like a 70 piece orchestra. And they're looking at me like, hey, it is Saturday morning. We don't have that kind of money and all that. I said, no, I want to kind of front load the budget of this and we'll, we'll make derivatives afterwards. But I want to make a statement that we're Disney and that even though it's Saturday morning, um, I want that theme. And so we got uh, Joseph Williams, who's John, famous film composer, John Williams, son, who's a great singer. And, and he came in and so all the NBC um, executives came down and they looked at me like I was nuts and they heard the first few bars and they kind of all smiled and left because I really felt like it was important that we differentiate ourselves and that we never be seen as something that was less than. And in the case of DuckTales, it was just so catchy. But the funny story was a few years later, Mark and I were remixing it for some purpose. And one of the tracks had gotten muted while the engineer was working. Oops. And so we're, so we're running the mix down and I go, Mark, it, something's wrong. I mean, it just doesn't. And it was the, Oh, it was that little answer. <laughs> so we were hearing DuckTales every, and there was no woo. And <laughs> so funny, I went, I know something's missing. And the guy went, oops, it popped in and we went, okay. Yeah. So that's what I thought, all right, I have like job guaranteed insurance here because I'm the only one that knows where every track is, <laughs> what it's supposed to sound like. And, you know, I was a real stickler for it. And that's one of the reasons why I like working on the stage versions because I'd already developed the sound with the composer for the movie version. And I wanted to make sure that every version you heard of Lion King was authentically Hans and Lebo. There you go. You see when you're when you're re-listening to that and you know that, hey, track one hundred and nine of that of that <laughs> that one vocalist is missing. I can't yeah. say that I could do that, that on many things, but we were just kind of buried in detail and we weren't thinking, I guess. There you go. I, I'd hate to see the track listing for all those soundtracks. Oh my gosh. The the, the, the yeah. tape is insane, I'm sure. Uh the last last bit. Uh when it comes to uh, making the Disney Park um, music or, or overseeing some of the Disney park uh, ones. Is there a particular soundtrack for an attraction that really, that, that you really loved working on, or at least, uh, you know, supervising. Soren, easy. That was, that was a touchdown. I was working with Jerry Goldsmith on Mulan and I was so honored that he was one of the four or five great film composers of all time. You know, I, I won't list the others cause I'll insult somebody, but Jerry was certainly one of them. And we had had such a great experience. And every so often, I wasn't working on the parks at that point. I would console occasionally. Later on, I wound up running the park music too. But at that time, um, I asked Jerry, would you consider writing an attraction? And to my surprise, he said, I'd love to. And so I would go over to his house during Milan about once a week and he would play me stuff. And so we continued that process on Soren. And when I went over and he played me that initial theme, I, it was... It was the exact same experience I'd had on any of our hit movies and hit stage. There's something about that music that just takes you. And then of course the visuals and that whole new, you know, style of, of movie making and, and the way it was exhibited and was such a great combination. But I think I was the proudest of that because I wanted the parks music to have the same uh, integrity that the films had and you have to spend money and you have to work with great artists to do that. I love it. I think there's something so Gershwin-esque 
about Soren and the fact that it is, it, it reminds me of like an old fashioned road show intro for a film. It just has that you go from one, one piece of uh, going into one part of the country to the next piece, starting from, you know, to another part of the country and the way it all weaves in there with those different type of cues is just, it's just wonderful. It's one of my favorite pieces for sure. Yeah. It made the hair stand up on your arms. I still, when I'm in the parks, I'll often go see it just to remind myself how much I love it. Yeah, same. That's, I love it. That's great. Yep, that, well, that wraps up the question. So thank you so much. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I mean, it's it's so amazing when, when you boil it down to this one statistic or a couple here uh, that you, under your guidance, Walt Disney Studios has garnered an unprecedented 42 Musical Academy Award nominations. And you won 16 Academy Awards in Best Song, Best Score, Best Musical Categories. I mean, that's unbelievable. It really is. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm proud of it. I I was lucky in that I worked at a studio uh, that really valued music. And that, you know, Michael Eisner and Katzenberg and then Bob Iger, they inherited a tradition that had been started in the 30s. Yeah. And what I'm the proudest of, more than the numbers, is I don't think that any media company or entertainment entity has ever repeated the level of initial success that a, the founder had. Right. You know? and, and, and it did during, during, I mean, Disney did during the, the late eighties into the nineties and early two thousands. I mean, it's, it, that's the Renaissance of, of Disney animation. I feel like we replicated the same kind of success that Pinocchio and Dumbo did. And that is kind of the accomplishment that means the most to me. And we were able to do something that, and, and we did it across so many different decades. You know, Walt started at such a different time, but it turns out that so many of his creative principles of music making and movie making were then translatable to us in the 80s and 90s for John, for Pixar. We, 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 were, we were walking on the, what is it, the backs of giants or whatever that expression is. Yeah, yeah, you know, Stand, standing, standing on, on the, the shoulders, shoulders of giants. giants. And, and, yeah. you know, that that is something that's really, I don't know if anybody's ever going to be able to do that again. It was just one of those magical moments, and I'm just glad I was there for the ride. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And so are we. Well, yep. well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the Skull Rock Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Well, thanks. You guys made it a lot of fun. We are now conducting our final systems check. Please stow all carry-on items in the under-seat compartment. For your safety, remain seated with your seatbelt fastened during your flight and watch your children. Bienvenidos. Favor de colocar sus efectos personales en el compartimiento debajo del asiento. Para su seguridad, permanezcan sentados con el cinturón de seguridad abrochado durante el vuelo y vigilen a los niños. Esperamos que disfruten su vuelo. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney.
another great chat day. Yeah, no, I mean, what an incredibly nice man Chris is. Uh, and, and just hearing the stories of the composers he's worked with and just his, his career, including his early career. I mean, holy mackerel, you know, just just, just fantastic. And I, I really hope our listeners enjoyed this guest because music is such a huge part of Disney and Disney animation uh, or, you know, going to the parks and resorts, uh, watching the animated features. And now, you know, obviously the, the live action versions of many of those and the Broadway shows and everything. I mean, it's just, it's just great to, to be able to, to ask some questions and get some glimpse behind the scenes of all that. I love it. You know, there are two people I I wanted to grow up being, uh, and I still feel that way today, Dave, when I grow up, I want to be like either Sammy Hagar all right, the rock and roll, the the rock and roll Jimmy Buffett, or I want to be like Chris Montan. You know, I mean, yeah, he is. There you go. Yeah, you got to have goals, life yeah, people. You got to have goals. That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, once again, if you love Disney and pop culture, please, please consider subscribing to the show. We'd appreciate it. Uh, we're available on all those podcast platforms. If you just happen to stumble upon us, give us a like, give us some comments, give us a review. We do appreciate that. And you can follow us on all the social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, be cool. Send us those emails as well. Al John at Skull Rock Podcast or Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com as well. And uh, I got to tell you, Al John, uh, next week we've got Don Han what? in the house talking about Beauty and the Beast uh, oh. for the, I guess it's what, the 30th anniversary? The oh 30th my. anniversary of Beauty and the Beast. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. But anyway, he, he's going to be with us uh, and I can't wait. Uh, so as I always say, peace and love to you all. Uh, go out, have a great week, and we will see you back here again next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.